It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Madison Allworth. I'm Bill Hemmer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Eben Brown. Russia's war in Ukraine is about to enter its third year, making it the longest and bloodiest in Europe since the Second World War. It's far from over, and a plan to end it remains elusive among U.S. policymakers. If we were to actually decide we want Ukraine to win, we would be giving them things faster. We would be giving them what they need. We would have accelerated this. This is the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. For two years now, Ukraine has been trying to drive back invading Russians. The war is bloody and devastating and costly, certainly costly to U.S. taxpayers who have fronted tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine's defense in a war that isn't ending in an effort to defeat Russia that isn't working. Or is it? How long will Vladimir Putin continue this? Putin is going to continue to attack Ukraine as long as he is able. Ambassador Kurt Volker is the former special representative for Ukraine negotiations and U.S. ambassador to NATO and distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He speaks to us from Kiev. So he has laid out his thinking, you know, everything from that article he wrote before the invasion uh, to his Tucker Carlson interview, uh, he is making clear he he believes that he has a duty to reestablish the Russian Empire. He believes that other countries are actually on Russian lands. He has a right to take them back, and the people that live on those lands are secondary, and they um, they don't they shouldn't exist. They don't have the same rights as Russians to take those lands. So it is a crazy imperialist genocidal philosophy that he has, not unlike what you heard from Hitler in the 30s. Um, That is what Putin is about. So he is going to keep attacking and keep fighting as long as he is able to do so. So then the question is, how do you stop him? How do you make it so that he cannot continue to do that? His forces are exhausted or they don't have the the ammunition or the technology or the leadership to be able to continue, the logistics to be able to keep going. Um, That is, you know, the question. Therefore, then you get to the other part of your question is, uh, you know, what will it take? So it will take a determination by the U.S. government, the Biden administration and our allies that we realize that it's in our interest for Ukraine to defeat Russia, uh, Russian forces in Ukraine, because if they don't, then Putin has other territories in mind. Um, And so he has to be stopped where he is. If we were to actually decide we want Ukraine to win, we would be giving them things faster. We would be giving them what they need. Uh, we we would have accelerated this. And one of the reasons why we're in this apparent slog on a stable front line right now is because we didn't give them the assistance they needed quickly and without limitation when we could have done so. Let's talk more about giving Ukraine what it needs. There is, we, we've certainly spent uh, plenty of billions of dollars 
on Ukraine. There have been uh, critics of that move. The question is, are even when we spend all this money, are we giving them what they need to win a war or are we giving them what they need to keep fighting a war? Because those are two different things. Or the third thing, which I think is actually the case, are we giving them what we choose to give them as opposed to what they need? <laughs> and okay, um, fair enough. Yeah. And I think that is actually the case. So, for example, earlier on in the war, we said, OK, no Heimers. You know, we're not going to give them these Heimers. Well, then we changed our mind and we did. And it made a difference on the battlefield. We said no armor. And then we started giving them armor. The Bradley infantry fighting vehicles have proven to be incredibly valuable. But for a long time, we said no. At the very beginning of the war, we said no stingers. We, for a long time, said no patriots. And yet air defense is one of the most critical things that they need. So we have been making this up as we go along and denying them things that they needed and then changing our minds and providing it late. And that is still the case. We now have the case of the longest range uh, munitions that we can provide, 300 kilometers precision accuracy. These are the ATACMs. We still aren't doing that. Um, we've held back on that for some reason. Uh, we have never provided them any kind of real air power. And, you know, imagine the U.S. military going to war without air power. Uh, it's unimaginable. And yet we are asking the Ukrainians to do that. And we have excess aircraft sitting in deserts in Arizona, and we are not tapping into that to give them to Ukraine. So there's a lot of things that we've held back on. There's also things that we could be doing that don't involve us in fighting with Russia in any way but are vital for humanitarian and civilian protection in Ukraine. For example, we could be assisting and we could have NATO be assisting with removing maritime mines in the Black Sea that threaten international shipping. This is a safety issue, a humanitarian issue. Uh, it doesn't put us in any kind of confrontation with Russia, but we could be helping with maritime demining, and that in turn would help Ukraine improve its exports, improve its economy, be less dependent on foreign aid. Let's talk about NATO. You, you just mentioned NATO's involvement on something like this. You know, one of the excuses or reasons or uh, that Vladimir Putin keeps giving for the reason here is that he has no security assurances from the West and that NATO keeps uh, creeping eastward. Um, but in the in the wake of his war, uh, NATO has crept further eastward. Uh, there are more NATO nations now. Ukraine seems to possibly be maybe on some kind of a track to one day even join NATO. It's it's being allowed into the EU. Ha has this been a self-fulfilling prophecy for him? Did he not count on this? Uh, or, or, or did he successfully goad the West into doing this? Uh, again, none of the above. Okay. Um, Putin uses those arguments of saying that NATO is threatening him to justify what he has already decided he wants to do. He wants to take over Ukraine and eliminate Ukraine as a sovereign independent state and eliminate Ukrainian national identity as different from Russian. Right. They are different. They're historically different. Ukraine's older than Russia. And he wants to eliminate that. So he uses the excuse of saying that, oh, NATO is enlarging towards me. I feel threatened, so I have to attack Ukraine. Um, and just, you know, nobody was joining NATO in 2022. Right. You know, Sweden was not joining. Finland was not joining. Ukraine was not on a track to join. It is his own actions that caused Finland and Sweden to say, 
you know, holy crap. Um, we have the biggest war in Europe since World War II happening right near us. And it is because he's rebuilding the Russian Empire. And by the way, Finland was part of the Russian Empire. So they look at that and say, we're not safe here. We got to be a member of NATO now. And it's not NATO creeping east. It is countries independently deciding for their own safety that they want to be a part of NATO. Uh, so it's very important. Putin's very good at using this this propaganda to make it seem like it's our fault that he's attacking Ukraine, when in fact it's something that he has chosen to do. We're speaking with Ambassador Kurt Volker, the former U.S. representative to NATO who is in Kiev, getting ready to mark two years of Russia's war against Ukraine. On the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition, we'll have more straight ahead. Let's talk about uh, domestically within uh, Russia. The the death of Alexei Navalny is certainly uh, uh, causing worldwide angst. Uh, this is, uh, but I, I think we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that his death has happened under uh, Putin's watch, and certainly, perhaps, maybe even at Putin's hand or his orders. Anyway, um, does this begin to affect his own hold on power domestically? Will that, or is that? not just going to happen is is this something that uh has no effect domestically in russia we get so yeah. we get so little news about the feeling of the average right. russian voters so well, yeah so this is a great question too the average russian is afraid and the average russian feels that they can't change anything so there's a combination of a bit of apathy that you know i can't change anything and if i tried to they would go after me they would they would arrest me, they would beat me, they would put me in prison. Look what happened to Navalny, look what happened to Nemtsov. You know, they killed both of them. So for the average Russian, there is a, a sense of distancing from what's going on in politics. That doesn't mean they're happy. That doesn't mean they support Putin. That doesn't mean that they will uh, have an uprising either. It's just that they're they're disenfranchised. Look what happened when Prigozhin launched his rebellion last summer. Um, you know, it went on for a little while. He marched right into the military headquarters in two different Russian cities uh, and was welcomed. He sat down and had coffee with everybody while he was on his way marching to Moscow. People in Moscow didn't come out and protest and demand that, you know, he be put down and we support Putin. No, everyone was just sitting and waiting and saying, well, we'll see what happens. You know, And some people, the rich people, were fueling up their airplanes to try to get out. So there's not a whole lot of support there for Putin, and I think he knows that. And then when you look at structurally, what are the things that we can observe with Russia with our own eyes? They're dependent on North Korea for artillery shells. They're dependent on Iran for drones so that they can continue attacking Ukraine. You know, they've lost their energy markets in Europe. Their budget has gone into deficit. They're having to spend 40% of their state budget on the military uh, in order to continue the war. That's a huge, huge percentage of your state budget. Right. Um, ordinary Russians are not able to travel and use their credit cards because they're, dis they're, they're off the global financial system anymore. Every time they try to have a conscription to get more people into the military, people vote with their feet and leave the country. So it's obvious that there are a lot of things under the surface that the Russians don't want to talk about and they don't want us to see, but there are actually a lot of fragility in the system. There has been another round of sanctions that have been announced uh, over the past couple of days uh, listed as being in response to the death of Navalny. Uh, Nav Navalny excuse me. Uh, what makes these 
sanctions different from the previous ones? Are, and, and are these the worst we could do, or, or do we have the capability to do more? We uh, could do a lot more. Okay. We could do a lot more. And I, I understand, you know, the administration is trying to choose carefully. What are the things we can do that affect Putin, people around him, strategic industries, but in ways that don't hurt us, that don't have a bounce back effect, don't affect global energy prices as much. They're very sensitive about how to calibrate this. But as a result of that, we are really not touching anything or doing anything that's causing Putin to think twice. He thinks that everything we've done so far and everything we did today, he's going to weather that. And they've over time, they always find workarounds. And so they're going to continue to try to do that. I think it's good that we launch these sanctions. I think we should look very hard at strengthening the financial sanctions and strengthening um, the energy sector sanctions, because that's where all of their money comes from. So shutting down things like um, for any way, anything we can do to uh, pressure shippers, companies that flag vessels, um, insurance companies, all of these enablers that allow Russian ships to dock at ports around the world. If we can disrupt those things, they're going to have a very hard time selling their energy. So there are th more things that we could and should be looking at. Um, and then the, the, the other part of the answer to your question is that Putin really only understands force. He doesn't care how much the Russian people suffer. He doesn't care how many Russian troops he kills. Um, it's really only force that stops him militarily that he respects. And so that's why it's important to get the military aid approved for Ukraine and then lift the restrictions on what it can pay for. Those sanctions uh, are often based on on the U.S.'s economic prowess, really, and its ability to control economies around the world. But some of the dynamics seem to be different. The rise of BRICS, for instance, really challenges that you know, the, the, the tying of the U.S. dollar to energy uh, markets. Mm. Um, are we in the best position that we've ever been or, 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 or have been previously to enforce these sanctions? Or are we a little worse off? We are not in the best position we have ever been in. I think that's clear. Uh, you've seen a diversification of the global economy, the rise of other economic powers, the euro emerging as a second uh, reserve currency after the dollar. So things have changed, but we remain in a very strong, very decisive position. And if we are willing to use it, uh, I think we can really have impact. But we have to be prepared for blowback effects. And that's where I think we're uh, exercising a lot of caution because we don't want to see those blowback effects. And, and just imagine a U.S. administration in an election year sanctioning Russian energy in a serious way that raises oil prices and therefore raises gasoline prices in the U.S. So that's the kind of thing that people are thinking about. Ambassador Kurt Volker, the former special representative for Ukraine negotiations and the U.S. ambassador to NATO. Thank you once again for being with us on the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.